The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Stay standing as I pray. Lord, we pray we would not be like that Pharisee. Would we be people who confess and repent that we wouldn't run from you, but that we would receive your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, between me not being in the pulpit in a while and shaving my beard, I feel like I need to introduce myself or reintroduce myself. I do work here. Um, I have been working. And it's good to be working in the pulpit this morning. Imagine with me a scenario. Your life is going pretty well. Now some of you won't, won't have to imagine too much here, okay? You have a stable income, good friends, a church you love. You have a strong religious community that gives you, your life a sense of identity and meaning and purpose and affirmation. You know what you believe and why you believe it. You're fully orthodox in your beliefs. Baptized into the communion of saints on the eighth day. A Christian from a family of Christians from the Anglican tribe of Holy Trinity. As to church attendance, flawless. At least maybe, well, pretty good during the summer. But the point is, your religious affairs are in order. The world around you, however, well, on most days, the best you can do is muster a frustrated head shake towards the wider culture. Dumpster fire is probably not strong enough for you as a metaphor. And one day you're reading the gospels during your morning prayer and you come across a passage that you know all too well. When Jesus commands us, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as you have been taught to do since you were a small child, you begin to pray. But this time you can't quite explain what happens, but you get this overwhelming sense, 
clearer than you ever have before that God is speaking directly to you. He's telling you to love people that hate you. In fact, he wants you to love people in very practical ways that if you are honest, you pretty much despise. Not just love them with words, but with practical deeds. And just imagine that your response is, I don't think so. After all, you think, I've got a good thing going, okay? This is comfortable, this is easy. So you run. Of course, running from an omnipresent God is kind of a hard thing to do. But that doesn't keep people from trying. In fact, the human race has invented all sorts of ways to run from God. And in some sense, the modern world has, has fueled entire economies on creating ways to run. As Naomi Klein explains, and she's done a lot of research on the successful brands of the 21st century, she says humans instinctually seek community and narrative and transcendence. And the most effective marketing campaigns seek to convince us that we can get these things if we just go shopping again. So with everything from hot tubs to hunting trips to 100-inch plasma televisions, we run. And we're pretty good at it. We can run from God from shopping and sex and pretty much anything in between. It's even possible to run from God through religion. But there has been at least one, at least one who's run from God by getting on a boat with pagan sailors and hiding out below deck. While this way to run is certainly not typical, it isn't any more misguided than the more common ways we humans run. So pick your poison, but just know you can run from God, but you can't actually hide from him. But there is some good news, kind of. All God actually wants from you is to die. And by die, I don't mean he wants the true you to die. I mean he wants the imposter you to die. He wants to kill the inhuman parts, the self-centered parts that make us envious and miserable. He wants to kill the cancer of selfishness that festers in your soul. He wants to kill the imposter posing as the true you, the golem-like creature that pops up, (laughs) that wants to control and manipulate. He wants to burn off the shell of metallic hardness so that you can taste and feel and delight in the good and the true and the beautiful. But that whole killing part, that whole burning part, that seems scary and painful. So instead, it's tempting just to take a little religion here and sprinkle a little bit of morality in here and we think that'll be enough. After all, that whole killing thing, handing our whole self over, means a kind of dying. That means actually giving up control. 
In fact, it might mean showing up in Nineveh, surrounded by people who don't share your values. So you think, if that is what God wants me to do, then throw me overboard. So even though we can't hide from God, we keep trying. That's what we humans do. This is, after all, what Adam was doing in the garden. And so like scared rebels, we follow Adam. We hide in our boats, we hide in front of our screens, we hide behind our careers, fearing that one day we might be exposed, that someone will find out, that God will find us. But somewhere inside you know it's all absurd. Running from God is absurd. There is no life apart from the giver of life. There is no true joy if you turn your back to God. If you keep your back towards God, you will eventually find yourself drowning. And this is where we find Jonah in chapter two. Let's jump right into the middle of it, verses five and six. See how he describes what was happening. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is describing a descent into the shadowy underworld of the dead. The descent started in chapter one. If you have your Bibles in front of you, look back at chapter one starting in verse one. If you don't have it out yet, just listen. This is what he says in verse, this is what the text says in verse three. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What happened? Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. This is what happens when we run from God. Look at, verse, look at the next verses. It, it explains. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. He went away from the presence of the Lord. These are intentional literary signals. We see it again in chapter five, and in chapter one, verse five. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. We're supposed to see this, this descent. When we run from God's presence, we spiral down. We become less alive. We become almost like zombie-like creatures these weird creatures wrapped here even with, with weeds, with their, with their heads being pulled down into a watery vortex that is spiraling down into the dead. And by chapter two, verse six, Jonah is on the brink of being locked into this watery prison forever. But from Jonah, back to you for a second. In one way or another, Let's just say, again, that, that you've been running, that perhaps, perhaps you've been running and, and trying to avoid the fact that you've been running. You've turned your back on God, at least in part. Through a variety of diversions, you've tried to hide from God, but God intervenes. As he so often does, he intervenes. No, in your case, he doesn't send a big fish, but instead he sends a friend or a stranger, or a parent, or even a pastor, and they speak a word of truth to you, 
and grace. And God, through them, brings you to your senses. You pray as Jonah did and God answers and you cry out like Jonah in verse six when he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so God in his mercy delivers you from the pit that you've been digging for yourself. What would you do next? What have you done next when this happens? when you have this overwhelming sense that that was God working in your life and he has saved you from the own, your own pit that you were digging. Most of us probably would give thanks. And that is right and that is good and that is what Jonah does in chapter two here. Jonah gives thanks and in stunning literary fashion, Joe prays a prayer full of echoes and allusions to the Psalms. His poetic prayer is not only beautiful, it's theologically robust. Look at verse three. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. So he's praying to God that God has cast him into the seas, but remember the story. Who cast him into the seas? Well, as as theologians would say, the secondary calls, it, it was these pagan sailors that cast them in, but Jonah knows the first calls. In God's sovereignty, Jonah was cast into the seas. Look at, look at the next verse, or the next part of verse three. And the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Even the sea and its waves are God's. Every square inch, Jonah knows it, it's all God's. This is God's creation. So here's a man in Jonah who apparently gets his theology right. Here is a man who prayed with eloquence and in the cadence of the psalmists. Here is a man who knows how to give thanksgiving. In fact, this prayer mirrors the many prayers of the righteous sufferers that we see in the Psalter. I'm talking about those psalms that we've read, that you all have read, where the person prays in a lament about what has happened to them, about their circumstances, but also praises God that he has vindicated them. But if you're tracking with me, you might be saying to yourself, but hang on. Was this a moment of vindication for Jonah? Was Jonah a righteous sufferer? There are some clues in the book that even in this prayer, this eloquent prayer, this this prayer that's theologically rich, that something is not quite right in Jonah's heart. Look at verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Many of the English translations put this like this. They say, I have been banished from your sight. But hang on, remember, Jonah wasn't driven away from God, he ran away. But here he says he had been banished from God's presence. In fact, where in this prayer does Jonah explicitly take responsibility for what happened? Where does he confess? Where does he repent? Oh, he he is thankful, no doubt, he is thankful. But it is one thing for us to be thankful for blessings but dying to self, truly repenting, that's harder. Now, 
in case you're thinking, you're being too hard on Jonah. I have to, I'll confess, I can relate to Jonah at this point. For I find it personally much more pleasant to give thanks and, and even to dwell on your sin rather than my own sin. In fact, as a theologian, I find it much easier to reflect on the culture's idolatry rather than my own. Apparently, so does Jonah. The only time he mentions anyone's sin in this prayer, it isn't his own. Look at verse eight. Those who, rep- who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Here the reference is to the pagans. The p- prophet who ran from God who hasn't yet in this prayer expressed repentance that we can see, is now praying about those and about the sin of those pagans out there. You know, those pagans, those sailors in chapter one, the ones who were urging Jonah to pray to his God and he refused. Those pagans who called out and sacrificed to the Lord back when Jonah, the great prophet, didn't want anything to do with God. And now with great eloquence, Jonah dares to contrast himself with the pagans telling God, what will I do? This is what I'm gonna do. Well, what God had told him to do was go to Nineveh. And yet there's no indication of him setting his sights in that direction. When you put this together, with chapter four, and I think we're supposed to go back through reading it, and you get to chapter four, and Caleb's gonna be preaching that in a few weeks, so I'm gonna still a little bit of a thunder this morning. I think we're supposed to see in chapter four, oh goodness, what's going on with Jonah, and come back and say, what, where did things go wrong in chapter two? He has such anger in chapter four because of the Lord's mercy. Jonah wanted mercy for himself, but he didn't want to give mercy. Jonah wanted God's blessing, but he didn't want to be a blessing to the nations. The people of Israel needed this story. Israel had been called not only to receive God's blessing, but to be a blessing to the nations. But amid the cultural pressures of their world, their fears and their own idols, they ran from God's calling. And so they ended up running from God. God's people needed this story. And today, as God's people, we need this story. If you're a Christian here today, you have the blessing of God. And the world needs that blessing. You know of the love of God, the hope of the resurrection. You know of God's mercy. You've experienced his forgiveness. You've inherited the blessing. Don't forget your calling into the world. To love those, yes, on the other side of the globe, as well as those right here. Perhaps those on the other side of the political aisle than you. Don't allow the media to turn you into Jonah. They'll keep trying. 
For there is too much money to be had by stoking anger, by fueling resentment. But don't forget, this gospel thing, as the Apostle Paul put it, is about faith and hope and love. Yes, the call of the kingdom, the call of God is to repent. So we preach repentance. But that must start with the planks in our own eyes. Jonah, the fully orthodox poet, prophet, theologian, skillful articulator of the gospel, of his theology, ran from grace. And by the end of the book, he is the one who is miserable and alone. You know, one of the really hard things about self-righteousness is that we don't see it in ourselves. We can spot it in others, and we hate it when we see it. But we're the last ones to see it in our own lives. Over the last year, I've been studying why people are leaving the church. We have this phenomenon of the nuns, those who are not affiliated in, in church in their, the faith that they grew up in. And I've noticed a trend. Many young people are saying that they were growing up in environments that were, that were full of self-righteous moralism. Now, from having spent a year on this, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. But to the extent that this is at least partly true, and I have no doubt that it is at least partly true, it is devastating. But then in these critiques of their parents and grandparents, it's hard for me not to see a kind of self-righteousness here with their own non-self-righteousness. It seems like no group has an exclusive ownership on this self-righteousness thing. In truth, we're all prone to pray like the Pharisee and Luke. God, thank you that I am not like those people out there. Jonah's tribal self-righteousness, as it turns out, is not just his problem. It's not a problem of any one group. Instead, it's our problem. It is the human problem. And it is a problem that, if unaddressed, will lead to the shadowy underworld of, self res of, of resentment and self-pity. But once you see the problem, right? Oh, once you see the problem, what do you do? Look at the last line of verse nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This verse, I think, is saying more than Jonah actually means. For on the one hand, Jonah is thankful for God's salvation, and he is right to be thankful. But on the other hand, he hasn't fully embraced the scandalous mercy of God. Once we see verse 9 in light of the entire book, in fact, in light of the entire biblical storyline, it should begin to melt away this hardened self-righteousness that has perhaps calcified your heart. For if salvation belongs to God, that means salvation is not something you merit. That means 
our only options are either to run or to receive. Now there's a million ways to run, but there's only one way to receive. The only way to receive is give up the chase. Turn back towards God, open your hands, bow the knee. If you receive salvation as a gift, if you absorb that truth into your metabolism, it will be the cure to the cancer of pride that is destroying your joy. A daily posture of confession and receiving will free you to live with delight in the presence of God. The good news is that God is not done with us. God is not done with his people and he is not done with Jonah in this book yet. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. In God's grace, Jonah was saved by a fish. And now God uses the fish to send Jonah on his mission. Jonah's not gonna get away from it. He still has to go. So he uses a fish and he uses Jonah. God uses vomited sinful people to accomplish his work. Why, why Jonah? Why you and why me? I have to confess, I don't fully know. But I do want to end with, with this thought. It, it might just be that it's in our Ninevehs, on our mission to our enemies, that God chisels our hard hearts. Maybe Jesus was onto something all along. It's only in losing our life that we will find it. It's only by following Jesus to the cross. It's only when we descend to the dead with Christ that we experience the power and joy of the resurrection of life. And that's good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you for the blessing and the joy of living our life in your presence, fully forgiven, that we might also forgive others, that we might also extend mercy. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.